Patrick and I are from completely different backgrounds and see the world through very dissimilar lenses. Patrick comes from a political family in the US. He worked in finance, served in the military, and is an investor and a risk analysis strategist. I grew up in a commune in Germany and studied literature. I'm a writer and a professor of cultural history in the UK. I am also a coach and I have published some books on the art of self-improvement. In other words, Patrick likes dogs, data, guns, and free markets. I like cats, trees, and yards. Patrick's core interest is systems. Mine is psyches. Patrick says tomato, and I say tomato. But what Patrick and I share is a deep curiosity about other people's perspectives and ways of thinking. We both appreciate nuance and complexity and share a sense of being politically homeless. We also share an interest in looking more deeply at current trends and dogmas and a love of Stoic thought. Both of us have a desire for conversations that are not about point scoring, poking holes into other people's arguments, or converting them to our ways of thinking, but that are based on respect and a genuine wish to learn. So I hope you enjoy our podcast. Good morning, Anna. Hi, Patrick. Good to see you. How are you? Good to see you as well. Doing wonderful. Thanks. Excellent. So today we wanted to talk about social media and the social media business. And we should probably briefly explain why we thought that was an interesting topic to explore. So lately we've both talked about, you know, being really old, Gen Xers. <laughs> and, and we realized that um, we had this massive privilege in the sense that we um, grew up without social media. We didn't have... Um, social media in our childhood it didn't shape our wiring whereas it it has been much more impactful on gen z and to a certain extent millennials um and yeah that that led us to think a little bit about social media the business model and so on and of course we all know what the dangers are you know what what is so bad about social media you know the mental health um, dimension in that there have been numerous studies lately that show that um, people who use social media a lot suffer from depression, anxiety, loneliness, low self-esteem. And of course, we know about the damage that social media can do to the collective fabric, you know, by spreading misinformation and um, endangering democratic processes and so on. Um, but we wanted to talk about something else, and that is the business model of the attention industry. Um, Patrick, you had some really interesting ideas on that. Thanks, Anna. I mean, I, I think a lot of this has been covered in um, sort of an older fashion, right? If you look at um, documentaries on Netflix, like The Social Dilemma, that became very popular because the people who were making the doc, you know, documentaries had worked in specifically the social media industry, looking at how to make people um, you know, more addicted to their phones and to the apps, right? And now they realize that perhaps this is something that we don't want to have gone this far, and it's almost cascading out of control. And, you know, I, I would argue probably that I'm, I'm not worried about things like um, people posting mis whatever their opinions that you can call misinformation. 
The issue is that the algorithms actually solve to repeat those, right? So it's not the person posting some crazy idea. They can, that's free speech to me. You can post whatever you want. It's that there actually is a built-in repeating mechanism that solves to repost those things because it happens to drive more engagement, right? So the social media business model is all about packaging our engagement, right? Our attention and reselling that to advertisers or to data scientists, right? And because of that, we have a, a bigger problem, which is even some idea that some random guy has somewhere or some lady has somewhere can actually become um, the talk of the day and has nothing to do with the efficacy of the idea. No one will check it. It has to do because other people are talking about it or mad about it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the, the issue is it, the reach it gives bad ideas. Bad ideas have always been around, There's a, but usually it was the the cafe or the bar, right? Then, or maybe a, a message board room, a chat room somewhere that had a few people. Now, yeah. because of because of the, I would say the dominance of these business models, right? I mean, whether we want to, you know, look at them as positives or negatives or utilities or public rights away, they're pervasive all over the whole world in some version, right? I mean, almost uh, smartphone penetration is almost 100%. I mean, there's more smartphones than I think there are people because some people have two to three. Um, because of that, and also because of the rise of 5G, even in you know third world countries, there's 5G, right? Sometimes better than in some of the first world countries um, because the latest technology rollouts hit them. Social media has the ability to reach almost everybody, right? And that's, that's, a, that's a, a good thing in some way if you were spreading good information or cheer, but when you're um, trying to reach people to make them maximize their engagement, it can actually turn obviously nefarious. And I, and I, and I think it's been, you know, we, we you, you spoke about the decline in mental health, decline in physical health, right. With screen time and also the rise in really bad outcomes, which would be, you know, body image um, issues as well as suicide, right. We're talking, and these aren't just, Oh, the younger generation has anxiety or whatever. It's, that's, it's much worse than that, right? It's actually that a lot of these people don't feel like they can engage without the screens, that they're so used to it that they can't. So it's like it's getting them from both ends as right as one is the, the younger generations are more productized than we were, and right? They're, they're individual productized as opposed to mass. There was always mass media for us. We watched television and radio and there were commercials, but they were for every person that was watching that show. So maybe they isolated the demographics based on their parsing it out, but it wasn't to Anna or Patrick. But I guarantee you, if you and I open our phones today and look at our feeds, whatever social media, they're going to be totally different because Anna's feed is tailored just to Anna. And they want to show things that reinforce Anna's worldview and also get her mad. Those are the two things, right? They want you to see little bit of good, but mostly bad so that you stay on engaging. And then my feed's going to be a lot different. And it's that issue is that we're actually seeing ultra, if we express ourselves through the media, the alternate realities we see become the issue is that we can't come to a common ground on what's actually happening. Yeah, and, the kind of filter bubble problem, right? Um, the algorithms that generate outrage and that generate envy and tap into all our darkest feelings um, and impulses and, and aggravate those. You know, I was actually, I was on a course a long time ago, it was a copywriting course, and there was a British journalist um, 
who's who actually said that tabloids, British tabloids, follow exactly the same principle, right? They they think about the topics that most aggravate the readers, you know, and that really get their skin crawling, and they cover these topics. And so people who read some of the famous British tabloids, it's actually an adrenaline hit in the morning. It's like when it's like a cup of coffee when they open the paper and they read something that actually jolts them into anger mode. Um, so I think that principle has always been around and people have always tapped into that. But as you say, Patrick, it's now the problem is that it's exponential, it goes viral and it happens at scale, right? If you have a a, a mad person screaming on the marketplace, uh, screaming untruths on the marketplace, it won't matter. And if you have, you know, a small percentage of the population reading certain newspapers, that's also still manageable as a society. But, you know, what you described, that kind of generation of um, lots of warring filter bubbles that become more and more extreme and that um, actually that results in us not having a shared kind of common truth ground anymore we just can't even agree on on basic facts and and basic narratives anymore and that's a massive issue and then of course also um i think what you mentioned with regards to um the people who haven't grown up with social media can still have the ability to switch them off at some point. You know, we've all read, you know, Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism, Minimalism and Adam Alter's Irresistible. And we've seen um, the Netflix documentaries so we kind of know about the machinations of the attention um, industry. But I do think for people who grew up with social media and who know nothing else, who haven't had childhoods without that in their lives, it's even harder, whereas we have a bit of resilience, we've built a bit of a muscle. Um, uh, so we are in a slightly different position. But I think the problem with social media is also that obviously there are advantages to, to having them in our lives. And there's lots of stuff that is beneficial for us. And we can't really be without, right? I mean, if you wanted to be completely abstinent, you would miss out on a lot of things and you wouldn't be able to um, benefit from some of the advantages. A bit like, you know, when you have an eating disorder, it's particularly hard because, because you can't just go cold turkey on your drug, right? It's an it's a part of our life. People have to continue to eat. They just have to really develop a healthy attitude to food, healthy mechanisms, and, and adapt to a healthy diet. And I think with social media, it's the same. Mm -hmm. Most of us cannot go cold turkey, right? Our professions require that we engage with them. Lots of our social groups, um, you know, gather in online platforms. We needed to coordinate the lives of our children. So, so we cannot go cold turkey. And I think using something addictive wisely is harder than not using it at all. Yep. And that's sort of true when you look at people who... Um try to cut down on drinking versus stop drinking. It's actually sometimes easier to stop. Just say, I'm not going to drink alcohol for the next three months, as opposed to I'm going to have one drink a day. Now, the more balanced people, the ones who sustain it longer are the ones who can do that, right? They can, the people who live to a hundred who have one glass of wine three times a week, and they've never had more than one, right? I think what's difficult, what you just said is we need sociality. We need social. 
We need media. It's a way we can express our ideas and consume ideas across platforms, right? I want to know what someone on the left and the right are thinking. The way they communicate that to me is through media. So we need both of these things in our life. The problem is the model which put those two together in this, you know, free packaging where we became the product is more the issue, right? And the and the dangerous issue is that our people's children, my friends, your children, are, they're the product, right? They're already building a comp, 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 very comprehensive sort of digital avatar of the kids to then resell or sell specifically targeted ads, right? So because of that, they also have better data on the younger people than they do in you and I, because they have a gap in our life, right? They know we may be interested in this for the last 10 years because of our engagement, but they don't know us for 25 years. Whereas the people growing up now, since they've been engaged in the world, they know everything that they've ever searched for, everything that they've ever looked at for a long time. They know the way that their eyes look on, you know, the apps like TikTok. They actually just look at where to the screen and the colors that you look at, and that's how they solve. These are sort of, um, they're genius applications in a way. The problem is people, even when you know it's happening, you don't know what's happening because it's happening quicker than we can see in the algorithms and processing capabilities beyond us. And I think that as long as that continues, the arms race gets worse, right? There's going to be, there's a version of, there's a TikTok 2.0 coming out that's going to be even, even more invasive and pervasive in terms of its, the way it looks at individuals. And the other thing is it's a brilliant model in the sense I've always admired is they are basically getting us to create their content for them. Right. So a lot, forget about ads on social media, Anna, but if I write a post or post a picture, they own that content and can reuse it to other people to then drive engagement and attention from them. So in other words, it's, they're just creating this great, this, this great, um, as you would say, this social network, but everyone else is creating the content. They can then reuse the content to drive engagement, to make more money. So it's very, it's, a, it's why these business models are so effective. It's why they become so pervasive. And so in the companies that drive them are incredibly large, some of the largest in the world, because they have other, instead of the traditional model of us sort of um, building a product or a service and then reselling it, we're the product of the service mm-hmm. and they didn't, pay, they didn't pay to acquire us. Yeah. And that's the spooky thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but TikTok is illegal in Montana, isn't it? They, um, I mean, it, it's, I don't know how you, you know, in terms of geofencing apps, how effective it is when people have VPNs. So yes, I mean, technically they've banned it. I think that's also a political statement, right? Which is um, TikTok is partially owned by the, the CCP, right? And the, the CCP algorithm in China is different than the TikTok algorithm in the United States. And they, they play around with the algorithms. And so they're also, it's a targeted for very young people. And the amount of engagement on it is incredibly high. And it's mostly um, useless um, user-generated content, right? To just keep people engaged looking at it. And then they splice in an ad here or there. And that's how they generate their um, money. I think that um, there's a case to be made for, um, it's like banning cigarettes for young kids, right? If you want to smoke cigarettes at 18, that, that can be fine. It's not necessarily we're going to let you smoke at 14 just because your friends smoke them. So I think there's a case to be made that we know now that many of the social media apps are especially bad for young women. 
right? And they probably should be banned up to a certain point. And the the only people really fighting that idea are obviously the social media companies because they make a tremendous amount of money off the engagement of young women. But if it was a blanket ban until 18, nobody would feel the um, that they didn't have social engagement. They could still text message and message people. That's the argument, right? Is that you can still form groups and school groups on messaging apps. You just wouldn't have the the uh, the infinite scroll mm. and the algorithmic feeds. So that's there, there is an argument for it. I just I, I think there's so many lobbyists on both. Uh, there's really all the lobbyists on the tech side. There, other people are more concerned parents and a few groups. But it's there isn't as strong of a lobby against as there is for. Yeah, yeah. I guess that you know, debating an age limit for these apps um, and platforms is, uh, would actually make a lot of sense, right? I mean, I remember that in in Germany, parents were extremely concerned of the impact on television on young mm -hmm. kids' brains, right? I mean, that was a debate you know, that took place 20 years ago. It's like, no, that's going to stunt their development. That's going to really do damage to their psychosocial um, natural development. So, so a lot of parents wouldn't let their kids watch television. But now we all seem to have given up on, on those kind of ways of thinking about um, how to protect childhood development and make sure that, um, You know, that it's not massively impacted by extreme use of, of certain tools. And I do think the argument that uh, quite a lot of children and even teenagers lack the emotional maturity to handle these tools well um, is, is a strong one. And of course, they're designed, as we know, they're designed to be hyper addictive, right? So why, mm -hmm. why do we give our kids something that we know is designed to be addictive? Um, and yet, at the same time, you know, we, if if you don't let your kid use it, you, you turn them into a kind of total outsider who won't survive in, in, in the digital age if they have no exposure, no skills in that area, if they can't be part of various different networks that their friends are part of. It's a really complex, thorny problem. You know, it's it's all about, I guess, ultimately trying to develop healthier ways of of engaging but it's easier said than done what, well there are i mean, I mean you, you look at the more totalitarian you know um, totalitarian regimes like china where they just restrict access to certain apps at certain times so kids can only play video games these certain times and they can use social media apps x amount per week and that that's a hard line right so they've mm -hmm. done what They've done what you just said, which is we're just going to force everyone under 18. This is the way it is. You don't get to use these things infinitely. And here's how much you can use them. We want mm -hmm. you to study and be good citizens. That's right. And so you don't get unlimited access to um, they haven't banned. They have they have TikTok and video games. They just say we're going to limit access. And there are certain hours each week. And I think on the weekends, they give them more. Right. So like Fridays and Saturday nights, they get more time. I mean, it's pretty draconian in that sense, but it actually works because they're saying we're not going to let 16-year-olds just have their own run of themselves because we don't let them do that in society anyways, right? We mm. limit, we have all sorts of licensure programs and age limits across our entire, all of our societies. So why would it be any different for something that, like you said, we know is incredibly addicting. It can be harmful. It's a good and a harm, right? Which you can say like, like food like many things, right? We need social engagement. We need the ability, but they're going to limit what it is for them. And I think the technology is there where they could probably create versions of these apps, right? So they would have a 
a light version that has more engagement or they're only maybe their friends feeds, not something else. So this isn't something that is impossible to design. They just don't want to design it because it messes with the business model of turning the people into these digital avatars. I think that, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a thorny subject because it does interfere with sort of individual liberty to an extent, but we don't give kids full agency, right? So that's, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's not really an issue there. The issue is whether the state should be doing it or parents. And what we decided a long time ago, that even if your parents want to let you smoke cigarettes, it doesn't matter, right? Like we, 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 oh, we overruled parents in many versions all across the world for, for safety reasons. And the question is, is at what point do we recognize that this is um, a safety issue? And the one funny thing is you said, uh, you know, that your, your kids would be outsiders or pariahs if they don't. It's funny because if you look at um, technology executives, don't let their kids use smartphones or social media. Mm, Almost yeah, across right. the they, they, would, so, so they, they don't worry about them being pariahs because they're like, you'll just be, you'll catch up and you'll be smarter than everyone else. It's the mm-hmm. argument about television too, is television isn't necessarily a, uh, doesn't melt your brain. It just isn't the same as reading, mm-hmm. right? So reading is lifting weights and maybe television's walking. So mm-hmm. the person who reads more is going to generally build um, better connectivity, a, a better lattice work of mental models to operate yeah. in the world. So- it's not that social media necessarily will melt someone's brain. It just won't make them as effective in the world. And when people are developing, should we give them a leg up? And what would you want for your daughter? Right. That's the question is like, what would I want if I had children? I can tell you what I want for my daughter. I really, really, really hope that the most harmful kinds of social media will die out or have radical age restrictions on them before she becomes a teenager. Right. Because there's also the peer pressure issue. Some kids already have phones. You know, she's eight years old. Some some kids in her class already have phones. Um, quite a lot of kids are on YouTube. And YouTube is such a dangerous place, right? I mean, the algorithm just feeds so much shitty, dangerous stuff in. Um, it's like, it's it's concerning, you know? Like, suddenly but, but you, you watch you could... and then you suddenly have a video of a beheading on your on but you could you could imagine that there could be a YouTube version for kids. I mean, there is. There you is wouldn't call it, but but they go around it. They they go around it. Kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they, they go know. around it. Yeah. The question is: yeah. Is should there be something even more where if YouTube makes it so easy to go around, they're not really trying, right? Because mm-hmm. they they could make it harder for children to reach around these things, right? You can yeah. use biometrics or other things rather than passwords. They have to use their biometrics and therefore they can't really access your channel because the other thing about YouTube is there's a tremendous amount of good content, right? There's just as yeah, there's, there's the problem videos. is, yeah, there's lots of learning videos. There's interesting things yeah. that engage people. There's lectures. There's, I mean, I, I think. It, That's the that, problem, that, right? I mean, if it were yeah. just bad, it would be easy, easy just to not use it at all. But, you know, precisely because it's a mixed economy of good and bad, it's really hard, right? It's like you have mm-hmm. fantastic history programs and how-to videos and recipes and how to draw and creative stuff. And then you just have all the dark stuff that somehow makes its way in there. Um, but I, I suppose this idea of, you know, we don't let 
kids do certain things that we know to be damaging for their development in lots of other areas. And here we do have the research by now and we do know of the impact and yet no one has taken legislative action and no one has actually properly taken this forward. You know, like I was very impressed with our school the other day who said, because kids were using WhatsApp, you know, quite young kids, they said, actually, there is an age limit on this app, you know, and young kids are not even allowed to use it. And I'm like, parents, can you please enforce this? And I didn't even know that, right? I mean, I think some some of these apps made or might already have um, age limitations, but nobody, nobody cares. I mean, who polices that? And that's... You know, I think one of the, it gets to the central core you asked me in the beginning was if the business model is that we're the product, right? We're not the, we're the user, but they're, they're taking our content and our um, attention and repackaging that. If we're not paying for it, we're the product, right? And the, the, the way that I think I've heard the most um, logical people on both left and right is say, well, we just, we need to create versions that we pay for so that we are the they're actually listening to us we're the customer because right now you and i can be the user but not the customer we're not the customer the people Mm. paying them are the customer and we're not paying them so until you create social media where we're actually the customer and they respond to us as opposed to the data scientists and the digital advertisers Mm. then we're going to have these issues because they're they're driving their business and their livelihood based on a different lens and we're looking at it through a different lens you're looking at it through harm they're looking at it through engagement now I, and i'm not saying that all the social media companies want to harm people it just may be the harm comes by by virtue of how they're doing it right so i don't think this is doesn't have to impute nefarious um uh i would say motives on any of the people any of the executives they can all be perfectly um, competent people maximizing what they see as their shareholder value. The problem is it's just like chemical companies discharging into the river. It becomes a tragedy of the commons. Well, you know, mental health is a crisis. We just play a role in it. Well, if you're discharging the equivalent of digital chemicals into people's um, bloodstreams, it's the same as them putting pollutants in our rivers. And they sued those companies. And they, I mean, the chemical companies have gotten a lot better. They're never perfect. You always need to police them but it's a lot better now than it was 30 years ago. Mm. The question is, this is actually, I think, happening faster, right? Yeah, because it's like tobacco, it's tobacco for the mind, right? Yes, faster, and, yeah. I mean, another question I just had was that, obviously, what, what these companies want is to hold our attention for as long as possible. But it's also sad that our attention is held by so much crap, right? I mean, it tells us something about um, us as well, you know? I mean, you could also say, why, why are we attracted to so much bad stuff? You know, why why, why isn't our attention going into other areas? Because I suppose that attention it is, is obviously as you, you described the process, it is directed by algorithms. It's made more extreme. It's stoked up, right? It's it's rendered much more extreme than it would normally be. But there is also the fact that our attention goes into certain areas um, to begin with. And then it is held there and it's, you know, and it's kind of, you know, fed with what it wants there. But 
but it there's also something quite sad about human nature i guess you know that well, the attention industry the attention industry if we were very fundamentally different as a species the attention industry might might stoke other emotions right well i think there's a there's a, there's an evolutionary issue there right is we've all known humans have a negativity bias right and sort of a threat bias because our ancestors sort of looked for issues in the environment, right? Looked for um, potential threats, analyzed those threats, paid a lot of attention to those because the people who were looking at the clouds and looking at the flowers got eaten or killed by neighboring tribes. So, right, it's a, we have a, we have a, a very um, tooth and claw, most of human history up until the point when we settled, right? When then people could start paying attention to different things. Um, so if you look at all, our whole evolution is we're, we're, we're trying to pay attention to threats within the environment and cues in the environment, and they hacked into that. So they're making some threat of some person in uh, India talking about their elections to a person in Montana looking at it on their Twitter. How is that person a threat in my world? Well, they're not actually, but in my Twitter feed, they become a threat. In Instagram, this person you know, posing in front of a car in Brazil becomes a threat to my status in Montana, even though in reality, they're not because they're in Brazil, right? But it becomes the cue that goes into us is the evolutionary cue, which enabled our ancestors to survive. So what they did is they hacked the evolutionary biology of human, the mind to make everyone's problem your problem, right? And that became that an incredible engagement tool. Just like they, they can hack, oh, I like to look at, um, this, these specific um, dance moves or this thing, they're hacking into a cue, a, a cue in, our, in our mind that had an evolutionary reason to exist. But now the technology has surpassed the evolution in a sense, right? And now they're sort of steering people to what to look at. And that's the difference with the, the we, we don't, the, um, as you said, the digital natives, younger generations versus us. We can remember a time when there wasn't a mainline feed into our brain. Yeah. And I, I think the yeah, the more concerning part is the people under 20 can't. Right. And they can't remember a time. So how are they going to be able to actually have that perspective of stepping back and saying, well, maybe it'd be better if we all read. And if you look at the young generations, they read a lot less. Right. The older generations read more than us and the younger generations read a whole lot. And people probably won't be reading books very much. Right. There's some audiobooks and some this, but they won't be doing it in the same fashion. And that's going to be a, um, a great long-term detriment to human innovation and, and thought, I believe. Um, but it's, it's, it's tough, Anna, because it was survival. They, they were sort of dominant um, evolutionary genes that got us to here. But mm -hmm. now they're, they've been able to hack those using the, the, the triggers which were, and, and, and they were known. I mean, the people who designed these were PhDs. They're researchers. They weren't just tech execs, right? They hired some of the best minds in, in neurobiology and neuroscience. And they totally weaponized psychological yeah. insight for all of that, right? Yep. Weaponized psychological insight. Instead of psychological warfare, which is a popular term, which it's just a, a psychological insight that happens to be weaponized to make money. It could be weaponized for other things, right? It could, like you said, these could be. Um, used for horrible things. And we can see there's been a lot of, you would say, psychological operation on both the um, Russian-Ukrainian side, right? For the first 
first total social media award history where there was media effective on both sides from the get-go. There's been a tremendous amount of information that we don't know, right? And deep fakes we don't know and people making up stories. And that's a, it's an effective warfare tool. The problem is that I don't just think it's a warfare tool. It's happening everywhere every day. There we can actually see it because it's part of a kinetic war. But all across the world, whether you're talking about, um, say, dividing issues, whether it's climate, whether it's um, social justice, they those are wars that they're just weaponizing both sides, right? And they're we're 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 running psychological operations, weaponized neuroscience, in all of these platforms. And that's something too that maybe people should look at the same way. Was the same way we get upset or mad about people using what we would call propaganda, right? Um, but they're using propaganda every day to us and your children. Your children are being fed a propaganda. It's just it's not as apparent as seeing someone make up um, a battle in that's going on right now in Ukraine that didn't exist, right? Or um, they, an attack that didn't happen. There, we can actually, maybe someone can visit and say, well, actually, this didn't happen here, right? The problem is, is in our digital landscapes of war, there's no, there's no actually ability to tell. Hmm. That's, it becomes more complicated every day for us. Yeah. And I guess it's also a particularly clever meta strategy I think in the information wars to just create chaos and uncertainty, you know, by making it ever more impossible to tell what is true and what isn't, what is fake, what is real. That's also partly a strategy, you know, because then you're in a realm in which you just don't have certainty and you just can't tell anymore. And you're so confused that you follow big, dominant, simple narratives. You know, you're much more easy easily captured by these because you're so confused um so i think that's also you know like this sowing of chaos and uncertainty well, is a massive um massive threat as well which is definitely being weaponized and what my my thing is, is i i don't necessarily think there's a man behind the curtain there i think it's just they sow uncertainty and chaos because you look more and by looking more, you spend more time on the app. And by spending more time on the app, they make more money off you. So mm. if if they said, here's the answer out of the climate, not, not exciting anymore, right? Because we have the answer. If they just publish a bunch of things on both sides and get you all stoked up so that you follow other people and you're pissed and you message, you engage, that's their business model. So their business model is chaos. It is uncertainty. Because if there are certain answers, then there's no there's no engagement. Right. If you can look on and say, okay, well, here's the answer on this issue, voting rights. Okay, easy. But if they can make it seem outrageous on both sides, we pay more attention. Because we pay more attention by our by our evolution to more chaotic uncertainty, right? If there's a certainty, we we can we we close that part of our mind and go on to the next thing. So you're right, by stoking uncertainty, they make more money. It doesn't need to be any um malactor. It has to, this is the crazy part is there doesn't need to be someone saying, I'm going to stoke this narrative. What it has to be is what narratives are really controversial. Okay, let's just spin those up even more. Mm, yeah. it, it, it doesn't actually have to involve any um, actors behind the scenes. It's just the nature of those uncertain discussions make them more palatable to throwing a bunch of chaos in, and then we have more talks about it. 
Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen, Patrick? Closing words. I, I think there's enough dialogue about this happening across the political compass, right? That I think age restrictions are coming and effective age restrictions. There are age restrictions now, like you said, but they're not enforced. And then I think, and you'll have to put some penalties on the companies if they don't enforce them better, right? Because they they could enforce them better. They're putting on the parents, but that's not the way it's ha- going to happen. Um, and it's just like you know, we we don't we didn't allow um, cigarette companies to target younger persons advertising that 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 ship sailed a while ago. But it was big lawsuits, right? So there has to be some monetary damages and penalties to the social media companies. And then I think they'll either have to break some of them up and create different um, versions of them, or they'll have a paid for version and a non-paid version, or all of them have to be paid for, where the people are, you and you and I become the customers. Um, and I think that some version of those will swirl around for the next decade. Um, and then probably it will will settle out where we realize, like you said, like, we used to let kids, you know, drink when they were younger and smoke. And there's nothing wrong with drinking as you get older if you want to. But we're going to we know it affects certain brains at developmental stages worse than others. And then the other thing is, is maybe certain countries will be like, we have a lower drinking age, but we don't allow binge drinking. And we'll allow an hour or so. You know, Germany may say you get two hours of social media a day. That's it. And and Norway may say one hour. And they'll be able to to. And then we'll be able to run tests and see who had better outcomes, right? Or, or you get a certain amount of you know time per app, and your parents put hard lines, and then your phone just shuts off; they can't even access it anymore. And that's mm-hmm. probably gonna. I, I think as the companies realize that there's a big popular push against this, they can make you pay for those services, right? You would probably pay for the ability to have, okay, you get 45 minutes of TikTok over the next three days, and if you exceed that. You're locked out of your phone. You would probably pay for a service. You would pay TikTok for the right to do that, right? And it may be only be a dollar a month or something, but it's just free revenue to them. And I think that you, you would actually then, it would, it would engender trust to you, right? If they said, we'll help you manage this process, you may trust them more, which in the long keeps your, because there's a chance the business models go away if the, if the countries get together and really go after them. So they're going to pivot and develop. They're incredibly smart people working at these companies. They'll create different ways for people to engage to protect the younger people. And I think there's enough dialogue about it, you know, and people should watch, you know, and and there's a, there's smarter people than us talking about it. Um, but I think it's, but I think it's coming, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. A, a, a deeper battle on the social media front and school and phones and schools and things like that. It's going to get, it's going to get more ugly before it gets better. Like most of the issues we talk about. Mm. And what do you say as a mother? Well, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm extremely hopeful that you're right. <laughs> I love the vision you outlined there. I really hope that's going to happen soon, you know, because I think it's also really hard for individual parents to police these kind of things mm-hmm. you know, in, in separate households. I think if there were legislation, if there were, inbuilt mechanisms in the apps oh my god i mean our lives would be so much easier um it's it's tough to enforce um you know screen time issues i I know a lot of moms and dads are really struggling with that it it costs a lot of i mean it just costs a lot of energy to do it and um, 
if there were like wider social collective agreement and certain mechanisms that automatically shut things down, my God, hallelujah, <laughs> I would pay, yeah. I would pay a lot of money for that. See? <laughs> Absolutely. Hopefully someone here says tech executive, reach out to yeah. Anna. We can help design this for you. Thank you, Anna. <laughs> Thank you for this. Okay. This great. great to talk to you.